shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, here it is, another edition of Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. I want to thank you for joining us. I got to tell you, we had a really great week. It was pretty awesome. And the shows that we did last week, we got some really good responses from the listeners out there. And I got to tell you, it's been really awesome. And, uh, you know, we're trying to come up with new ways to give you guys some entertainment. And uh, But the guy that keeps me entertained is here, and let's bring him in. That's Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm fine, man. I'm, I'm glad that I, that I entertain you. Um, uh, if, if I were somebody who was schooled so regularly uh, as I school you um, in our podcast, man, I wouldn't find it entertaining. So, so kudos to you for keeping a cheerful attitude about being proven wrong so often. That's right. I mean, I lose more balls <laughs> with you than I do playing golf. How about that? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we had, like I said, you know, we had a really great week and, you know, we had a couple yeah. of our folks who, uh, you know, we had a, quite a few emails this week and we were talking mm-hmm. last week about, you know, the two issues of the medics in Minnesota who were suspended. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about the challenges in the Carolinas with the 70-minute response time. And there were some people that had some good things to tell us and some good things to say. You know, so we got a lot of emails, Kelly, on on the show that we did, and I thought it was really fun and really awesome to hear. You know, one of the emails came from Dan, who has got a really great, I mean, I'm talking about a great email address, and I certainly won't share that, comes to us from New Jersey. And one of the things that he talks about, he's not a fan of system status management, and that's okay, because it's not for every system. I've seen it work. I am a proponent of it, and I would use it in any system. But one of the things that he talks about is he says in the email, let me ask a better question. If you have an ambulatory patient in an urban setting, why should it take you more than 70 minutes from start to finish? I'm with you, Dan. And I think one of the things that we think about is we think about the people who drag their feet and, and the people who don't want to get to the hospital. I mean, the quicker they have a turnaround time, the quicker they got to get back into service and help the rest of the system. Some of us do that. Other people don't. Kelly, I know you got an email that you want to chat about as well. Yeah, yeah. And my email comes from Graham Judd. And, and Graham points out that, that there are so many variables uh, that go into determining time on task uh, that it may well not be something that we can we can affect, but he goes on to say that the bigger question is, do these type of incentives even work in the first place? He talks about, um, yes, uh, time on task is probably something that should be tracked, but the question being is, should it be incentivized? Uh, and, and he points us to a TED Talk uh, from a, a guy named Dan Pink called The Puzzle of Motivation, and we'll put a link in the show notes. One of the greatest, he says, uh, one of the great economists of our times, Dan Really, or I guess that's how his name is pronounced, but anyway, uh, did a study uh, of some MIT students, and they gave these MIT students a bunch of games that involved creativity, motor skills, and concentration, and he offered them for, for their performance three levels of rewards. There was a small reward, a medium reward, and a large reward, and if you do really well, you get the large reward on down. What they discovered was that uh, as the task, uh, if the task only involved mechanical skill, the bonuses worked as would be expected. If it only required psychomotor uh, application, uh, the bonuses worked just like you would predict. Uh, the the better they did, or the bigger the reward, the the better they did, and so on and so forth. But the exact opposite happened 
when it was a cognitive task. If they gave them a cognitive task or required them to, to exercise thinking, a larger reward led to poorer performance. And the thinking on that is, is that uh, it goes into a great deal of depth in the TED Talk, and, and for a TED Talk, it's pretty long. It's 30 minutes, but uh, I, I intend, intend to give it a listen, and, and I would urge our listeners to as well, but he goes on to say that the, the premise is that because our work in EMS is based on cognitive skills, that incentives such as uh, you, know, you know more points and, and bigger raises for short time on task does not work because what it does is it removes the cognitive thought process of paramedicine and starts to in incentivize mechanic uh, mechanistic tasks of just putting a patient on stretcher and going to the hospital, which is a, which is pretty much what I said in the in last week's podcast right. is that it focuses it makes us focus on on the simple things and not necessarily good patient care and that's what these that's what these uh, medics uh, at medic were were upset about is that the incentive itself does not work and only encourages poor patient care. Uh, so uh, I, I'm looking forward to uh, looking at this, uh, this TED Talk that Graham pointed us to, and uh, I would urge our readers to do the same, see what you think of it. Yeah, and I kind of started listening to it, and I think it was really awesome. But one of the things that it made me do, Kelly, is and we get, we get a number of emails every single week. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about our clinical issue here in a little bit, it comes to us from another listener. And but what's really great about the show is, is is we try to pick up topics that are really kind of thought provoking, and mm -hmm. we really get some great responses from our listeners out there to to help guide us along after the fact. And we want to send kudos out to you guys, and you know, thank you for being listeners of the show, and and thank you for helping us develop content and, and to bring it to you. And hopefully, like I said, we're a bit entertaining. You know, uh, in addressing Dan's uh, Dan's reply. Uh, uh, Dan's email to you, and, and I love his email address just as much as you do. It's pretty awesome. But, uh, you know, he's talking about, yes, that time on task needs to be tracked, and he, and he points out that the, the reality is that some EMS crews just drag their feet. Um, and he's absolutely right. But the problem is, and, and I approach this from a street grunt's perspective, and I've been in management, and I, I know where you're coming from, uh, and I know that things like time on task need to be measured, uh, and, and some standards need to be enforced uh, for the system to run at maximum efficiency. On the other hand, from the other perspective, you know, and I bet you money that without naming any names, you could probably think of your problem crews when you were at Christian Hospital EMS. I could think of my colleagues that are known by management and known by their fellow, by their peers for lounging at the hospital and milking every call for all it's worth before they have to go back into service. Now, is it fair from an employee's perspective that you, that you impose a system-wide standard when the problem is only a few crews? Yeah, and one of the things that I tried to do, and I know we, we didn't really want to get into this topic, but mm -hmm. I, I don't find this the standard to be uh, you know, something that they're setting a standard in the sense of punishment you know, you got to set a standard for resource management. I mean, if, if all yeah. your trucks just took two hours to do calls, you wouldn't have trucks when you really needed them during exactly. the peak time. You know, just like you guys, you guys said, Dan, very well, and, and Kelly, as you said, there are people who are dragging their feet. One of the things that I did as chief was, is I tracked the system time uh, for compliance purposes. I knew what our system time on mm -hmm. task was. Then I tracked it by shift, A shift, B shift, and C shift. Yeah. Then I tracked it by crew, individual crews. And if you fell below the system average, we had a discussion. 
if you fell below your crewmates, why is it that A shift and C shift is at 73% of transports and in this amount of time, but you're at 56% transports in this amount of time. So I think as leaders, you're absolutely right. Not only do we know who those people are, but if we don't address them as leaders, we let down our high performers. But let's go ahead and get to the news because there's a lot of things to talk about in the news. And, and today was a really horrible day. So Kelly, what do you got for us? The one that struck my interest was uh, South Carolina EMS agency. This is in uh, Beaufort County. Um, the, uh, all the EMS and public safety employees lost their health care benefits. There were 551 Beaufort County employees uh, lost their health care benefits, and some of them were incensed enough about it, rightfully so, to resign over it. Now, from reading the story, this is not their just their health care benefits. This is their this is their pension stuff. The cut to their benefits after retirement was they, they cut it all off. Uh, so there will be no post retirement health care benefits uh, from the city council. I got to tell you, man, you know, I mean, we, in today's economic climate, we gripe about, a lot of conservatives gripe about entitlements and, and how much uh, drain uh, pension plans and, and golden parachutes and this sort of thing uh, are a drain on the public budget. Having said that, that's just not kosher. You know, those people entered into that uh, entered into that employment agreement. Uh, they held up their end of the bargain. Uh, it is not fair in any way, shape, or form to go back and yank their benefits retroactively and say, okay, all the stuff that you have paid into, uh, the blood, sweat, and tears you put into this agency, count for naught. We're just cutting off your benefits. Uh, I don't know how they can get away with it. You know, I got to say, I, I'm with you, but one of the things that we're starting to see is is more and more of these companies are doing away with entitlements, doing away with incentives. You know, the word benefit is just that. It's a benefit. And there's yeah. no rule that says that they have to provide you health care. There's no rule that says they have to provide you with pension. There's no rule that has they have to provide you with vision care. They do that as a benefit for you to come and work within their facilities. Now, the thing that's a challenge is I think the people who have committed, as you said, to the organization and said, I want to go ahead and be part of this. Or you should honor your commitments to them. Yeah. And I think that yeah. there are going to be lawsuits here that, unfortunately, I think the, the, the city is uh, or the county is going to lose. And uh, I would hate to be in that position. And, and even if they win, even if they win out uh, and they successfully defend the lawsuits, and I, I heartily agree there probably will be some and there should be some, but even if they win out, they're still going to lose because this is this kind of move. It just trumpets the fact that you don't keep the faith with your people. You know, you, you entered into a bargain with an understanding, and then you reneged on the bargain. Plain and simple. If you cannot trust uh, your employer to do that, then uh, of what use is it working for that agency? That's going to be a stain for anyone entering uh, or for anyone they try to hire in the future you know they're gonna go it uh, they're gonna try to hire people to replace the people who quit and those people go in knowing hey not only are we not going to get health care benefits but these people the the city council will come back and yank stuff uh, after the fact uh, we can't trust these people right and who's gonna who's gonna work uh, for management they cannot trust very few only the desperate, the, the needy, and the, the needless that uh, have no business in EMS are going to get the drags from this point. Right. Well, let me go into my story. And this has just been a really horrible news day. 
you know, and we're recording this show on the 26th of August, and this is the day that the gunman kills the news crew while they're doing a live spot and then eventually kills himself. Of course, before he decides to kill himself, he has to post the shooting on Facebook, and now people have to uh, see this thing, because once you see it, you're not going to be able to unsee it. You know, the, this gunman fired 15 shots, mm -hmm. disgruntled employee, right on the live news. And, you know, and somebody mentioned to me today that, you know, th this is a really tough thing because when, you, you know, we've all kind of dealt with the news. And when the news is going on, the cameraman is focused on the is focused on, on the reporter. The reporter is focused on the camera or the person they're interviewing. Anybody can walk up and do something stupid like this. And, and, and this exactly. is going to kind of change what life is like. And again, Kelly, I want to ask you this question. Where are we safe? We're not safe to go to the movies. We're not safe to go to church. We're not safe to go to schools. And this is just now becoming, you know, too common that people are just losing their lives in everyday practice. You know, well, uh, I will I will quibble slightly that, that this is becoming too common. Yes, we are hearing more about it. I think it's more due to the the social media, uh, the prevalence of social media and the 24-hour news cycle in that uh, information, information is transmitted, you know, uh, at the speed of thought now. Um, you don't have to wait till the 6 o'clock news to hear about it, and, and there's, no, uh, there's no editorial process to decide what is newsworthy and what is not when you've only got an hour to, to put it on. So we're hearing more about it, but statistically, mass shootings are, are not... Uh, all that prevalent in our society, even though we hear about them a lot. They're outliers. But to answer your question, where are we safe? We're not safe anywhere. We're not safe anywhere. But the problem is, is, is there is no guarantee of safety in society. Or there is no guarantee of the feeling of safety. I think our governments uh, have some degree of responsibility in, in providing us with safety. Um, the problem is, is once you have a government that is intrusive enough to be able to guarantee safety for its citizens. Uh, it is a government that, that most free citizens would be unwilling to live under. Um, it becomes so pervasive in your life uh, that you are no longer a free person, you're a kept person. Uh, this is one of the, the problems we're going to deal with in a free society. Um, the government may be able to work for your safety, but they can't guarantee your perception of being safe. That's not an enumerated right, and that's something that your fears are your own to master. Um, I can only tell you my uh, my response to it. Uh, I go with the assumption that there is no place that is truly safe, uh, and I take steps to assure my own safety personally. Okay? And for me, that means I, I, I carry a firearm, and I try to maintain proficiency with it, and I'm aware of my surroundings whenever possible. Um, that may not be the choice of for for other people who are not comfortable with firearms or, or don't haven't made that mental uh, step uh, or haven't made that mental decision to uh, to for armed self defense. That's okay, um, but we can't just uh, assume that that we're going to be safe uh, anywhere we go anymore. Yeah, it's always been that you way. Know, and we're I, just hearing I, about it. You know, one of the things that I I've I've always disagreed with you on is the. You know, you talk about that it's just more in the mainstream now because of so social media, because of Facebook, because of the news. And and, and I got to tell you, I, I've always been involved in, in knowing what was going on in the news, and it's always been a part of my day to read the paper, and it's always been part of my day to watch the the local news and the and the world news for the past I don't know ten or fifteen years. And, and I don't remember 
reading or seeing school shootings. I don't remember reading or seeing theater shootings. And now you can't even be a police officer. And you can't even stop and help somebody. I mean, the trooper in Lake Charles, Kelly, and I, I think this is someone that you're familiar with, yeah. went to, to help somebody who was in a ditch, stopped to help somebody in a ditch, and said, this is the day that you die. And, and again, my, my condolences to you and certainly the family of this officer, but, but even, even police officers aren't safe to do their job. Yeah. Police officers, uh, by the very nature of their profession, are not going to be safe doing their job. And, and, and I would submit that any, any person who puts on that uniform and that badge every day wrestles with that, with that possibility that he may not come home, after, uh, come home from a shift. And God knows I respect that. Um, uh, but, you know, these things are going to happen. They shouldn't happen, but they do. We live in a world with bad people, and more laws and more safety don't do away with bad people. Uh, and unfortunately, the crazy people out there, you know, don't wear signs. And, and the dangerous places, there are no signs out there, you know, here there be dragons, do not enter here. Sometimes you just don't know. And, and accordingly, uh, that's why I, I try to avoid uh, places where I think there might even be the potential for uh for uh, compromise to my safety, and, and I take take steps to uh, to protect myself otherwise. But you know, Stephen Vincent was killed trying to help a a motorist who is a multiple DUI conviction scumbag who is still walking our streets and driving a truck who had no business driving one. Um, but what strikes me uh, as as more indicative of of what can happen in society is this one guy lashed out killed a cop uh, in cold blood, but five or six more people jumped in and subdued the man, uh, tried to render care to Stephen when he was down, and handcuffed the man, uh, handcuffed the perpetrator with the trooper's own handcuffs. And, and for people who are shocked by this sort of thing and dismayed, and, oh, my God, what's our society coming to, I would point out to you, just like this, just like Mr. Rogers said uh, when when bad things happen is look for the caregivers because whenever one person lashes out in anger um, that's horrible but you will always see 20 more running to help pick up the pieces and to and to uh, help the injured and and to do what they can um, fundamentally uh, those people are always going the lone wolves the the bad people the monsters are always going to be outnumbered by the good people and that's the way that's I used to look at it yeah, you know, Kelly, let me ask you a question. So let's think about all the things that we're talking about here. And, and, you know, we're talking about the theater shootings and everything that we just mentioned. Do we now have to start worrying about our people? And we've talked about this, and when I mean, you know, our, our peers in the streets and, and our employees. And, and we've talked about in the past about bulletproof vests, body armor, you know, uh, you know weapons. And is there going to come a day where we have to really start considering to keep our employees safer than what we do now? Yes, I do. And, and, and I think that, uh, I think that day is not coming. I think that day is here. Uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that EMS agencies need to start considering, uh, if not outright supplying their personnel with, uh, with, uh, bulletproof garments or not bulletproof with, with, you know, at least level two, a threat protection vest, 
um, and possibly even a stab vest. Uh, those are probably more common than the gunshot wounds. Um, they need to at least start considering those, or if not, um, doing some sort of program to subsidize them if the, if the um, uh, employee wants to buy themselves, uh, let the company fund it and do a payroll deduction where they pay them back. You know, what you and I talked not long, uh, uh, some time back about uh, the, uh, the North Carolina EMS agency requiring helmets in a truck. Uh, a helmet wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped uh, here either, but um, I'm, I got to admit, I'm, I'm almost starting to, to buy into the, the thought about the helmets as well. I wasn't a fan of them when we initially covered it. Um, but I can, I can see where they're, I can see their utility now. Well, let's go ahead and transition. I mean, an incredible day for news, but Kelly, we got another email from a listener and he asked us a question. I really want to take some time and get that, that question answered. So why don't you go ahead and lay that out for the listeners? Yeah, we, uh, we got a, uh, email from Michael Stallard, uh, wrote to us to, uh, he is a, uh, a student at the United States Coast Guard's EMT school and a discussion came up in class about, uh, stepping over a patient, um, and there were some uh, some uh, disagreement there. Some people say never ever step over a patient, and some say well as needed, and some people say well yeah, there's nothing wrong with stepping over a patient at all. Um, and and he wants to know our take on it. Um, I can give you my take right quick, uh, fast, and in a hurry. Anytime someone says never say or never do this or always or never, if they speak in terms of absolute, my BS filter goes in high gear because uh, that has the stink of dogma attached to it. There are very few absolutes in healthcare. Uh, never do this, always do that. I, I don't buy that sort of reasoning. Um, and the few absolutes that are out there are, are intuitively obvious in the first place and don't need teaching. You know, never put a pillow over your patient's face. It's considered poor customer service and detrimental to patient care. But we don't need to spend time teaching that in class. It's pretty obvious. Uh, all the other stuff, eh, smacks of dogma to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I think that putting a pillow over somebody's face, uh, I think that opens up a different door. But, you know, when this came up about the stepping over the patient. Now, I come from the old school of you never stepped over a patient. I and, was too. Yeah, but, you know, you try to do the things that you're taught. And, again, do we do our job today, the, you know, the way that we were taught in school? No. We, we went ahead and we've made our skills our own and we've done different things to adapt that. And i got to tell you, I've not stepped over patients because it was the dogma that you don't do it. And I've stepped over patients because the need was it was necessary to do that. Mm-hmm. And you had to do it to deliver good patient care. Now, yeah. I really tried to minimize that to patients that were usually trauma victims. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were that were um, you know had medical complaints. I really wasn't worried about stepping over them because they were there to help me maneuver around them. Mm-hmm. But the people who were unconscious that needed you know two two large bore IVs or you know you're in the ambulance and and you know the stretcher's up against the action wall and you can't get access to the you know to the right vein and you know you need to kind of kneel between the I mean you, sometimes you got to do what you got to do and, yeah. and I don't understand the the complexity of if you step over if you step over a patient you know it's 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 like opening umbrella in the house. Now, I will tell you this, though. On a pediatric arrest, I wanted to get another IV, and I went ahead and stepped over the stretcher, 
and put my foot on the action wall, and I started an IV on the other in the right uh, in the right arm of this baby. And as I came around, I kicked out the one I put in the left. And now there was uh. now there was fluid everywhere. It was filling up on the cot before I realized it, and I had to shock now. And so I was in a really big pickle because I allowed myself to step over the kid, kicked out the IV. Before I realized it, I had fluid everywhere, and now what was I going to do? So I think that there are good and bads to it, but, uh-huh. but I will stand on the side to say, you as the practitioner do whatever you need to do to deliver the highest quality patient care. Exactly. You know, students... Students hate ambiguity, and instructors hate ambiguity, particularly the ones that the the instructors who are a little uh, lacking in confidence. Um, Students want to hear an answer. They don't want to hear, it depends. And and honestly, the answer to should you ever step over the patient is it depends. Um, That doesn't answer their question. That just promotes more thought. Uh, And when you're worried about what's on the next test, more thought is the last thing on your mind. but as instructors and as mentors and as teachers, we need to encourage that kind of extra thought uh, and, and, and engage people that way because uh, truly it does depend. And we need to be confident enough in, in our ability to explain the concepts that we're okay with ambiguity uh, and that we can deal with ambiguity and, and, and ease the, the student's mind uh, just because they didn't get a, uh, a definitive answer to their question, at least they know uh, what the issue is. If you're going to, you can't say you're going never, ever, ever step over a patient. What if uh, the mechanics of proper lifting require and, and space considerations require you to step over the patient? What if you have to reach, like as you said, the, the right side of the body to, uh, to start a, a second line? Um, I have sat on the stretcher um, uh, and straddle a patient's thighs before and started that second line. I have stepped over a patient in cardiac arrest. I have stepped over trauma patients. I try not to do it. I try to walk around. But, man, if there's only one way to get her over to the patient where I need to be, well, I'm going to step over the patient. Whenever someone tells you never do this or always do that, that should, that should really uh, um, ramp up your skepticism because there are very few absolutes. Uh, it. We, we teach a lot of dogma in, uh, right. in EMS. And it's one of these things, Kelly, that you find out, and I like the way you said it. You said, you know, when somebody says must always, you know, that it raises your BS indicator, and, and I like kind of how you put that. One of the things that I've found out is your, and we talk about this all the time, how we've got to change the structure of EMS education, because a lot of these don't do's, come from people who were anal retentive, who wanted you to do it their way, or it was the wrong way, you know? It's just like Mm -hmm. those FTOs who make you route to the call the same way, or route to a posting location the same way every time. No, you've got to go this way. Well, why do I got to go that way? Because that's the way I go. I don't care how Mm -hmm. you go. I'm going to go how I want to go. If there's preferred routing, I'll take preferred routing. But there's too many times where instructors or field training officers say, this is the only way to do it. And I'm here to tell you, and, and I think Kelly's there to back me up finally at least one time to say, uh-huh. that's not the way to do it. That's not the only yeah. way to do it. And, and you should not be bound to, this is the only way to do it. There are many approaches to patient care. And, and just because it's not the same approach you take does not mean it is an incorrect approach. I learned that early in my career. And I still see it 
perpetuated throughout EMS. It's, it's endemic. Uh, you go to some states, and, and this will be the this will be a clinical issue in a future podcast. Is you know, is there a specific, absolute, correct way to do a skill, or is there room for is there wiggle room? Yeah. You know, you go to some states, and they think that if you do not repeat the National Registry skill sheet word for word in order, you have done it wrong, and therefore you were you will fail. Right. And it has never been that way. That's just the way they interpret it. It has never been yeah, the standard know, but to one, do it that way. But one of the ways, that, one of the things that you teach, the reason that you teach it that way is because you know at least you're not going to forget anything. So it's, yeah. it's the memorization of those skill sheets that ensure that you hit everything. But here's, I'll give you one of my, I'll give you one of my things. When you intubate somebody, you've got to put the blade into the right side of the mouth. You've got to sweep the tongue to the left, and then you inch the MAC blade into the molecular. Okay, I don't mm-hmm. do that, and I haven't done that for probably twenty years. I intubate somebody, I take the blade, and I start in the left corner of the mouth and slide it into the right corner of the mouth. And then when I straighten the blade out, I'm right in the vollecula. But the only reason that I learned to do that was playing with my skill and learning the best way. Because what I didn't like is as I tried to get the blade in, now you're inching it little by little until you get into the vollecula mm-hmm. as you're trying to move the tongue aside. And I said to myself, what is the best way that I can get that tongue pushed aside without having to inch this blade in here? And little yeah. by little, I read. And little by little, I talked to. And little by little, I tried it. And then realized that if I slide that blade in on an angle from the, from the left corner of the mouth to the inside right corner, and then I straighten my blade out, I am right in the molecular every single time. But we, we've got to either be able to teach those concepts or yep. give people the critical thinking skills they need to learn what works best for them. Exactly. And, and you know, I don't sweep the tongue to the left either. I never have. Uh, I never go in on the right, sweep the tongue to the left. I lift the tongue and everything. I go straight in with a, uh, with a, a Mac 3. Um, that's my preferred blade. I go straight in, straight to the vollecula. Sometimes I may walk down the base of the tongue and go a little bit further incrementally until I can visualize the structures I need to. Um, and that works for me. I don't do any sweeping of the tongue to one side or the other. Go straight in. And you know something? It may not be the way you were taught to do it. it may not be the way uh, it is it is traditionally taught. But there's a saying, you know, if it looks stupid but it works, it ain't stupid. Yeah, I like that. But it looks like we got a, a little bit of a clinical issue. Even though, even though this wasn't our clinical issue segment, it sounds like a clinical issue. It is, and, and I think uh, uh, I think it's a it's a good fodder for discussion. So we want to hear what you guys think. What other kind of dogma is there out there that that just burns you up? What chaps you're behind when people? talk about absolutes, never do this or always do that, that really do not have any business in patient care. Okay? Let us know your thoughts at the show at ems1.com. For myself and co-host Chris Cibolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.